0: So I have a confession to make, Um, and I'm sure some of you are either going to make fun of me for this or just kind of shake your head at me. I've noticed there's two types of things in my life, and, well, there's actually like 700 billion things in my life, but getting to the relevant point, sometimes I look at something before it has come out, whether it's a movie or a show or a book or a game, and I say, and I look at it and I say, ah, that's going to be terrible. Or look at an economic situation, I say, oh, that's going to go bad. Or look at a medical situation, I say, oh, that's going to go bad. And I hate it when I'm right. Um, When I look at something and I say, this is probably not going to be good. And then I'm right, it's just disappointing, you know? Then there's another type of situation where I look at something and I make a prediction about, say, oh, this is going to be such and such. And I'm completely wrong. Now, that one tends to be a little bit more weird, excuse me, because every now and again it it gets to me, every now and again I'm really excited for something and it just doesn't live up to what I wanted it to be. But then every now and again, I look at something like, that's just going to be crap, I don't even know why, I'm not going to see that. And then I'm completely wrong about it. I had no interest in Thor uh, at all. I knew Thor. I'd read the comics, and granted, I wasn't reading the modern Thor comics, I'll admit that, but the Thor comics I'd read were of a big, dorky idiot who was not very interesting from a literary perspective. (laughs) I wasn't into Thor, is what I'm trying to say. So I saw Iron Man. I saw Iron Man 2, and I didn't see Thor in the theaters. I never did. It came and went, and I went to see Cap, obviously, But after Avengers came out, this is this really weird one. After Avengers came out, and I saw Avengers for the first time in the theater. And I say first time because I saw Avengers in the theater like five times. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one on that one. But after that first time, I got home that night and was like, oh my god. You know, and we're talking about it, we're talking about it. and, And one of the things I mentioned was how surprised I was that Thor was actually awesome in that. And their response, the friend I went with response was, yeah, I mean, haven't you ever seen Thor? No. What? So they popped in the DVD, like, on the spot, and we sat down and watched Thor. So, my viewing experience was Avengers, and then about, like, 30 minutes later, Thor. Now... And I do like it, by the way. I do enjoy this film quite a bit. I know it doesn't really work with everybody because it has a completely different tone from the rest of the franchise, especially the, the I wanted to call it the Season 1, the Phase 1 stuff, the lead-up to and including Avengers. But I really did like the general presentation of this film, the visual special effects and their design. The design of the visual effects and the design of the presentation of the Bifrost and the Rainbow Road and the the Asgard itself was all incredibly brilliant and awesomely amazing. It's not often I get to jazz about that kind of visual effects thing, but holy crap, they really did a good job designing this one. And I loved it, and I'm like, oh my god. So then I saw Thor 2. Well, that's not on the docket for this year. We might cover that sometime. But anyways, getting back to my point, I like this film. It is far more light-hearted in tone than most of the others, and it also manages to be deeply character-centric. And I found that interesting, especially since I didn't even realize until I was doing my research for this video that JMS worked on the story for this film. Original story, as in he's not the one who actually wrote the teleplay, he's the one who wrote out the story. One of the two people, I should clarify. And... That makes a lot of sense now, especially given the fact that he goes through... Well, actually, everyone goes through some fairly significant character changes and arcs throughout the course of the film. Most notably, the big ones, Thor and Loki, but I'll cover all that later. Right now, I want to talk about some behind-the-scenes stuff before we get into the film proper. So, people were like, you know what? I really want to make a Thor film. Yeah, let's do a Thor film. This was 1990. You're probably noticing a trend here, because in the 90s, there was... So in the late 80s, there was what I usually call the tail end of the first era of comic book movies. I I had to correct myself, because I usually don't think of the first era as an era, but to be 100% accurate, it was an era. There was a lot of comic book stuff, either on the big screen or in television, back in the 80s and 70s, which was... There? There? I'm not going to give my opinion on it. That's not relevant. What's relevant, though, is the style and the presentation of it was completely different from anything that would come later. Uh, A lot more tongue-in-cheek, a lot more straight-facedness. You know, uh, know, Christopher's Supermans is an excellent example of what I'm talking about. Uh, And then the second era really got started with... uh, Well, actually, that's debatable. I usually say that Spider-Man and X-Men are the ones that really started the second era. It could be argued that the Batmans is really what started that. But again, I'm getting a little bit off topic. And Batman came out well before any of this stuff. But where that changeover happened... There was still a surprisingly large amount of interest in doing comic book movies, especially from a creative perspective. There were a lot of writers and a lot of directors who were really on board with the idea and were trying to shop around and get something happened. One of those directors was Sam Raimi. I'm sure most of you actually recognize that name, but in the off chance that you don't, he's the guy who directed Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man film. (sighs) Okay. If I say this first Spider-Man film, it's probably the one you're thinking of. But I do not mean the actual first Spider-Man film, because there's actually one before that, and technically two before that. I'm talking about 90s Spider-Man. Um, i talking about, uh, oh my god, I can't think of the actor who played Spidey, who played Peter Parker. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll look this up real quick, real quick. Sam Raimi. Very professional, very professional. What the hell is his name? Because I want you to know what I'm talking about. Tobey Maguire. There we go. The Tobey Maguire Spider-Man was what Sam Raimi went on to do instead. Basically, he was really trying to get a Thor movie made. No, there was just no real interest from studios. No one was willing to bankroll it. So finally, he ended up going with Spider-Man instead, which was a much more popular work. And remember, this is the 90s when the idea of doing a lesser-known comic book character as a movie was not really well accepted. Only rare occasions was that able to do. Big studios were like, no, 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 we need the X-Men. We need Wolverine. We need Spider-Man. You know, We need the big names we need superman we need batman you know most people weren't shopping around at the time for a thor film so the project was put on hold for a really long time um about 16 years actually god that's a weird thought when i say put on hold what i mean is that this this it was shopped around from about three studio studios total and just kind of floundered and some of them tried to get things happening and nobody wanted to put into it and nothing was really going and just this it was just this colossal mess until Well, this may sound like a familiar story, the rights and the licensing ended up back in the hands of Marvel. And Marvel, right about when Kevin Feige was really making his push, was like, yeah, we'll go ahead and make this happen. And about in 07 and 08, when they were working on Iron Man 1, they started the very beginning preliminary stuff for Thor, among others. Now, it's funny, considering Thor came out quite a bit after Iron Man 1. But, you know, they started shopping around ideas, and it was something that was being considered. Then Iron Man came out, and was the smash success that it was. Marvel now had established themselves as a movie-making industry, you know, Marvel Studios, and they now had the ability, or industry, excuse me, company, and now they had the financial power and the political clout to say, yeah, we're making a Thor movie, and we're making a Captain America movie. And they were actually able to pull in resources and assets that they otherwise just weren't really capable of doing, because they either lacked the money, or people just were going to say no. So all of a sudden, several people are interested in doing this Thor flick. And that got shopped around for a bit. One of the biggest things they did was they really dropped a lot of money on basically what we now refer to as Phase 1. A lot of money on actors, a lot of money on the leasing for the studios, for the actual... Not not studios, for the uh, filming areas, and for the uh, equipment... For IL- they 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 contracted ILM long-term. Basically, they put the money on the table and said, we're making like five films here, okay? Six, I believe, actually, total. One, two, three, four. Six, Yeah, six films total. We're making these six films. We're doing them pretty much in order, and they're all going to tie in together. We've committed all in. Now, it's worth noting that despite the colossal success of Iron Man 1, this was still seen as a very risky move. So... At the time, what we now refer to as the MCU formula hadn't really managed to take hold yet. And our fr- 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 functionally, it wouldn't really take hold until phase two, which I'm not really going to cover in these sequence of videos because that's just a whole other series of mess, which I've talked about before in my show. What is relevant is they wanted to establish a unique tone with each film. Now, Iron Man and Iron Man 2 had a fairly similar tone to them, and, well, they should. They had mostly the same cast. uh, Of course they had the same cast. Mostly the same uh, crew working on it, same director, same writing staff, etc. Thor, they wanted to go a different direction, and that leads us into the tonality. Um, They like to go with a combination of what I usually refer to as epic tone, you know, big, grandiose giant battles, you know, swelling, orchestral music, that kind of a thing, along with just almost non-sequitur humor and ridiculous silliness. I could probably summarize this film in a nutshell by showing you two scenes from it, so you can get both sides of the equation. One is the scene where he's like, You will not stop the money! And then someone jabs him in the butt with with a sedative, and he just kind of passes out and the scene where he pleads with Loki to spare these people's lives because he has done the wrong and he knows that he deserves what he is going to get for this. Those two scenes, side by side, if you watch those side by side, it's actually kind of stark, the the, the difference between them, but the relevant point is that that is the tone or tones of the film. It is silly and ridiculous, but it is also very character-centric and very dramatic. Again, epic is the way I like to define that. They also kind of got lucky, um, so they brought in Liam and Chris Hemsworth, and the Hemsworth brothers were both very strongly being considered for the role of Thor. In fact, it became so close that they, like, they were some of the last people amongst the major uh, actors that they had finally hired and, and signed in for this project because they were really torn between both of them. I find that kind of funny in hindsight, but I do think they managed to do a really good thing by pulling in Chris Hemsworth. He is kind of awesome in the role, and it's funny, because he's one of those actors who's a good actor, but I'm trying to think, this happens a lot in Hollywood, where you have someone who has a good talent for acting, either natural talent, or just they've got the charisma, or they've got the presence, or they know how to present themselves, you know, something and they usually do meaningless non you know whatever work as bit roles or people who just die early on you know he, there's the cabin in the woods that Chris Hemsworth was in for example and they're just kind of in the background and most people for the most part don't really notice them that much but every now and again you've got an actor like that who just gets noticed by someone and they're like hey you and they give them a larger role, and then they nail that larger role, and that's pretty much the beginning of their career. That's kind of what happened to Chris Hemsworth here. Although what probably got him noticed by several accounts is Cabin in the Woods, where despite having a fairly small and relatively irrelevant role, he kind of nailed it. I don't know if you've seen that film. Uh, it's a horror film, so fair warning. Um, <clears throat> I know, hard to believe with a title like Cabin in the Woods, right? But he did kind of nail it in that role, and now we have Thor. Now, Tom Hiddleston is an interesting example because Tom Hiddleston is a geek. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I say that as a positive. I say that as a compliment. He is a total geek, and I love him for it. He's also really big on, like, lots of interaction with his fans. Always has been, really. And he's really big on just kind of being cool with things. He rolls with the punches a lot, and he gets the same crap that everyone gets. Even I get crap, and I'm a dinky little speck in the universe. So he, he just kind of takes the crap and whatever, and he just, just responds like, Hey, what's cool? You know, We're good. Hi. But I mention that because I think that it helps to explain why Tom Hiddleston is Loki. I I don't even think I could divorce Loki from Tom Hiddleston at this point in time. Because he nails the role so perfectly, and most importantly, multidimensionally. Now I'll talk more about Loki later. But for me, I think there's two big reasons why Loki is the... (laughs) like, the villain, the the most recurring and popular villain of the MCU and has come back as recently as last year for a film. And people still love him for it and people still write for him and people are just, yes, more Loki. And we'll be seeing him again in, uh, I guess, about three weeks from your time and closer to, like, two months from my time. Um, It's because, A... Loki really is a truly multifaceted, multidimensional character. He is not... <laughs> as much as I love the MCU, a lot of uh, lesser characters, and even the villains in the MCU, tend to be monodimensional. Um, I don't know why I said that that way. One-dimensional, they tend to be just, this is me, and that's it, and there's nothing else. This is me, this is me. You know, They've got their one character trait, and that's basically all they've got going for them. Loki is complicated. And, first of all, that makes for a more in-depth and interesting character. And second of all, I've noticed fans like to debate Loki. And I imagine there will be quite a bit of debate about Loki, both in this film, in this video, I should say, about Loki, about Loki, wow, about Thor, and in the Avengers film, where Loki will be back. And the second thing he has going for him is Tom Hiddleston, who is a great actor and really knows how to portray several different ends of the spectrum, so to speak. He knows how to be quiet he knows how to be reserved. Not quiet, but reserved. He knows how to present a farce. He knows how to do like the, the the cruel smile. He knows how to do the flat, oh god, what's happening? He knows how to be emotionally distraught. He knows you know he hits quite a large range, is what I'm trying to say. So between a multidimensional character and a multifaceted actor, we have Loki. Quick aside. When Avengers was announced, one of the first questions I asked was, who's going to be the villain? Now, they answered that question fairly quickly. For hmm, about a month after that announcement, every time Avengers was brought up between me and my various friends, who were all wanting to see Avengers when it came out, um, I couldn't help but comment on how ridiculous their choice was a vill- for a villain was. Remember, I hadn't seen Thor. So I'm just like, Loki? Of all freaking people to be the villain for the Avengers, it's Loki? That's stupid! That's so ridiculous! Why would anyone want Mr. Prancy illusionist idiot to be the villain for... Yeah, I, I was wrong. <laughs> I am mad enough to admit that I was wrong. Um, I just thought you might enjoy that. I was even saying that like leading up to it. It's like, God, I'm, I want to see this film, but God, Loki? Really? And by the end of it, I was like, Loki's amazing! Yeah! <clears throat> so, so uh, let's go ahead and discuss one thing really quick here. I enjoy Thor quite a lot, actually. I really enjoyed going back through it for this one. But there is one fairly significant flaw to it that kind of bugs me. It's something... Uh, I should probably make a lorium for this sometime, because it's, it's a th- not an uncommon thing in fiction. I see it a lot in kids' cartoons, you know, when the little one is watching TV or whatever. It's a thing where a character has to... where they, the, viewer, the creators want to establish that a character has changed so what they do is they follow a fairly simple formula they are very extreme in one direction something happens and then they're an extreme in the other direction and that's what bugs bugs me about it it's really irritating when they when they go way out of their way to establish just how unlikable or unpleasant or rude or crude or whatever they are and then oh revelation and now we are completely different from that now I'm not saying people can't change but to use a parallel here Stark was still a likable person who still had legitimate humanitarian perspectives, was naive, admittedly, and was actually trying to help the world, in addition to being a dick, before he had his big moment and then his revelation. So it wasn't a... I keep wanting to say a Stark... It wasn't a huge extreme variance, right? By contrast, Thor at the beginning of this film is a goddamn dick. I'm sorry, excuse my language, but he is so unpleasant... Like, it's actually irritating seeing him on screen. It was a little bit difficult to sit through a lot of the earlier scenes where he is just a prick. And he's that worst kind of prick, too. He's the kind that's grinning and smiling at you while he's schmarming about. Not because he's rubbing it in, but because he is so self-certain and so confident in himself that it doesn't occur to him that anyone would disagree with him. That kind of a dick. Hated him. Then, you know, he's sunk down. And then he's a little bit of a dick. Not too much. And then he mellows out considerably. And then he has a pretty good character arc. Thing is, it happens like that. Like, in-universe, this happens over, I think, three days. Something like that. Very quick period of time. And, um, and again, the earlier extreme is just a little bit too much. I personally don't think we see any hints of the real Thor prior to him hitting Earth. That's just my opinion. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. And it's my biggest flaw in the film. I mean, it's too quick, like I said, a couple days. And it just kind of goes way from one end of the spectrum to the other. That being said, I do like where he ends up. Because it kind of... Well, I'll, I'll talk about that later. I'll talk about that later. Because I want to talk about that in one specific part. So, beginning of the film, you know, Ah, oh my gosh, you shall be crowned king, blah, 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 blah. Oh, me. <laughs> Funny thought. If Loki hadn't let those frost giants in, then Thor would just be king, because that was his crowning ceremony. Weird thought, isn't it? I also find myself wondering how exactly the leadership structure works in Asgard. I mean, you could say it's a succession thing, that by virtue of being son, it works. In that case, Loki would technically be bastard son, but it's not like bastard sons haven't been. Or adopted son, I guess, is actually more accurate in this case. But you know what I mean. He's not of blood, but he still has the capacity to take up the mantle. But Thor was going to be pronounced king by the previous kings. Basically choosing your own successor. Whereas Loki took the mantle naturally by virtue of the fact that there was no one else to take it. I really wonder about the politics of this. I know that's a weird thing to dwell on. You guys know me. It's also interesting since... uh, I'm not going to spoil too much, but as of Thor 3... The command structure is uh, questionable. Anywho, so I I know I've already said it. I really want to comment on it again. The visual style and design is absolutely amazing. One of the things that the director and the visual effects team both commented on is they wanted to make each realm look different. And I don't just mean different sets. I don't just mean a different painting in the background or different CGI for the area. I mean they wanted to present them visually differently. Now, they primarily do this through a a series of color filters, but if you're paying attention, I'm sure most of you have already noticed this, they also do different types of camera work for each realm. Down on Earth, it's your typical, you know, camera, everything's normal, as if it's just a... Uh, I mean, it almost seems like a rom-com. I know that sounds weird, but the way they direct things visually and the camera work they do is very typical for a very normal, no fantasy, no magical type of thing, which makes sense to do for Earth. Up uh, Up on Asgard, they do a lot of sweeping angles and a lot of vistas in the background. They make sure there's always something amazing in the background that you have to look at. And they like to do a lot of these big panning shots. Now... On Jotunheim, the camera is almost always static, except for action scenes. Instead, it's just, and we see this one big, decrepit area, and the people move, but the camera just stays right here. Occasionally, the camera will move right here. But a lot of really simple stuff. It's a great way to visually distinct all three realms, and I give them credit for, for doing that. It probably would be difficult to do that for like nine different realms, because there's only so many different styles of camera work you can do. But they did a good job with three. So... Early on, I'm sorry, I kind of skipped past this, Uh, Odin is talking with his two sons, and he says, you are both born to be king, but only one of you can ascend the throne. Now, obviously, in hindsight, that makes sense, because he's the son of the Frost Giant king, and he's the son of the Asgardian king. But even taken on its face, why? Why? I'm sorry, again, I don't want to get into more of a political stint here. Not controversial, political. But why does there have to only be one king? Odin claims that his original purpose for bringing uh, Loki in was to be, you know, you're going to be the person who's going to help bring our species together. Snubbing him for kinghood doesn't sound like a good way to do that, first of all. And second of all, why not restructure the books... I mean, you don't need... I know this is going to sound weird, but you can have two kings. You can have device division of power. You can have division of responsibilities. I mean, this is a thing you can do. And as weird as this is going to sound, I think Thor and Loki would make one hell of a team. I really do. Both of them complement each other astonishingly well. And by Thor 3, both of them understand each other very well. So... I think that would be really awesome. Granted, I probably not wouldn't work here, but no, 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 no. One king! <laughs> so then we see, well, we hear, excuse me, Mjolnir. No, no, they show it, they show it. They show Mjolnir. Mew Mew, as some people say. And uh, one of the things I like best about Mjolnir is the fact that there's a degree of real science that can be perceived from it. Odin actually flat out says we crafted this from a dying star. You know what happens when a star dies? Well, I mean, a lot of stuff happens. But one of the things that happens is we have the partially theoretical relevance of neutron. Neutronium, that is to say. Something that is incredibly dense and would, ironically, weigh quite a bit. I think that's mostly just an in-joke because, and I can't believe I'm saying this, this film had science advisors. Thor. Thor. The most magical, fantastical of the early MCU works, and even some of the later ones, actually hired real physicists and theoreticists, or theoreticians, eh, in order to give science advice on what to call things and to make it feel more grounded and more, and to kind of basically bridge the gap between the science and the magic of Thor. So I'm pretty sure that was done as kind of an inside joke on their, on their part. Anyways. They also show the Destroyer very early on. In fact, they do a lot of Chekhov's gun in this film. We see the Destroyer practically right at the beginning. And when Thor says, we're going to go down there and we're going to kill them, why don't you just leave the Bifrost open? Oh, I can't. If I did, it would eventually destroy their realm. It's just a little line. I'm sure most people just kind of missed that the first time they were viewing it. Lord knows I did. So just slide it under there. So it is funny how effortlessly Loki manipulates Thor. Thor. He, first he gives him encouragement, I agree with you. We need to just get rid of them. But then he provides the answer to Thor's dilemma by discouraging him from it. You can't go against father's orders. No, 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 no. And he disagrees and puts up a protest for what Thor wants to do, but he doesn't make it hard. You know, there's a difference between softy protesting, which is basically, no, no, we, we can't do that. And hard protesting, which is more along the lines of, this isn't happening. Now, he gives a weak protest. No, 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 no we can't do this. Thor, Thor, think this through, you know. <laughs> he just maneuvers him right into this. It's funny to me, because it ties into something I want to talk about later when it comes to Loki. Just keep that in the back of your mind. By the way, one little fun fact, and I'm pretty sure this was done on purpose by the director... Loki spends a lot of time in almost every scene in the entire first act of this film basically keeping quiet and watching. Very, very Loki, i just like to say. So then they have the court's Rainbow Road. I wanted to pause to talk about this for a second. I'd already already brought it up. But here's what I wanted to talk about. I am probably going to oust myself as a terrible heathen heretic, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. but I think most works shouldn't be one-to-one converted when pulled into a new medium. In other words, I don't think comic book stuff should be taken literally as writ and when put into a movie format, to use the direct example here. For those who are not aware, back in the comics, it's literally just a rainbow. It goes off of Asgard down into wherever they're going. That's, that's the friggin' road. Rainbow Road, Mario Kart joke. Um, so, I like what they do with it here because this is effectively a way to either reimagine or reinterpret the original intent. So, what they did was they designed this quartz thing, this long quartz road, which looks gorgeous. And then it looks rainbowy, but the funny thing is it's not static. If you really pay attention to it, the reason it looks rainbowy is because it's refracting light differently based on when the camera angle moves. If the camera angle stayed perfectly still, there's actually a chance you wouldn't really realize it was a rainbow road. So, good stuff on that part. A good good way of doing that. That's just my opinion on the matter, of course. Now, obviously, some stuff should be done more literally. We don't want a Captain America who's a Hydra agent. That would be ridiculous. Anyways. So, I want to comment really quick on Heimdall. Sadly, we don't see that much of Heimdall in this film. And I want to comment on... Because I also want to comment on Sif... Fandral, Volstagg, and Hogan—I had to write down some of those names because I couldn't remember them. Which is kind of my point. Thor and Thor Two and Thor Three were all kind of similar in the sense that they have background characters who don't really receive what you'd call a lot of characterization. There's not, they don't have a lot of screen time, and yet they—they they were weirdly compelling and were very much enjoyed by the fan base as a whole. Like, if I say Heimdall's awesome, most people I know who are interested in Thor will automatically say, Yeah! Heimdall's awesome! Or Sif is awesome! Yeah! Sif is awesome! They get, like, no scenes. They are good in those scenes, and they got good actors for them, but you get my point. That being said, I think Idris Elba pretty much nailed Heimdall. There's a scene later which he does even better. I'll just mention it now. It's the scene where he... uh, He's like, have you come here to commit treason against the king and go do this thing? Um, yeah. Good. I must go now. What are you doing? I must go and inform my king of the treason. I cannot open the Bifrost without his order. And he just leaves the the freaking uh, spear or, or sword, or whatever it is, in the Bifrost so they can open it up. That's great. <laughs> that is gold. Anyways. So... I want to comment on one other weird thing here. I don't know if I fully believe this anymore. I wrote this down before, like at this point in the movie, so I'm not sure if my opinion has changed on this or not. But I really felt like a lot of portions of this film felt more small than they should. A lot of small sets, a lot of small areas. The town of New Mexico, which is smaller than my housing complex, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, Now, I know why that is originally Thor was going to be a lot more expensive and they had to basically completely restructure the script to make it less than half the price what they were anticipating spending on it so that's probably the big reason for that it doesn't bother me that much because this is a very character-centric film so the characters get a lot of focus and with smaller sets and smaller areas it's easier for the camera to literally and metaphorically zoom in so I'm okay with that pardon me one moment it's lore moment I want to tell her that I'm here that I'm okay um, just telling her I'm recording some more, uh, stuff for the show. I can't, apparently can't type, but I'm in a hurry. Go figure. Next thing I want to comment on. <clears throat> There's a bit where they're all fighting the Frost Giants in Jotunheim. I also want to bring your attention to something. Notice how Loki pretty much manipulated him into going down there. Loki also, as he admits later, flat out told the guard to go run and tell Odin that they were going in order to save their lives. What do you think Loki's goal was with that particular bit of manipulation? I'm not going to answer my own question here, because I'm building up to a point, which I'll mention towards the end of the film. So... During the fight with the Frostriants in Jotunheim, we get to see a little bit of each person's combat style. I really wish we'd seen more of this, because this is basically all we see of this. But they did manage to make each person feel distinct in the way they fight, not just the weapons they use. Um, so we've got Thor, of course. Uh, he actually, a lot of his choreography was based on boxing, believe it or not. Um, and he's, he's what you call the heavy. He's the guy who just... Uh, Sif is very precise, very strict. You know, the, the, probably the best overall warrior of the entire group, including Thor. Hogan, he's a harrier. He's there to, to, to harass, to irritate. He's the skirmisher of the group. And then we've got... Uh, what do we got? Volstagg, complete barbarian. Rock headbutt, You know, just getting right up there, close quarters. Uh, then we have Fandral. He's all about outmaneuvering and outplaying and just trying to nip, 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 nip. Okay, let's do this. Okay. And, of course, we do actually see Loki fight. One of the very few times in the entire series where Loki flat-out fights someone. In fact, I think there's only four times that I can think of off the top of my head when Loki fights someone hand-to-hand like this. And, of course, he plays to his strengths. Illusions. majory. Oh, God, no! uh, Well, he's gone. Uh Ha-ha. We also see a couple of things. I'm going to skip forward a little bit here. So, you know, Odin comes down. eh, They get out. What this entire sequence shows us is that Thor is very good at fighting and nothing else. Thor is not good at leadership. Thor is not good at teamwork. Thor is not good at long-term thinking. Thor is not good at doing anything other than beating people up. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um, I do have a question. Just a wonder, uh, weird little uh, question for you guys. So, Odin takes the hammer and is like, here, do this, blah, 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 tosses it off. Do you think that anyone else who was worthy, for whatever reason, who could pick up the hammer would actually be called... would basically be Thor at this point? Do you think we have a Shea'goroth kind of a situation here? Appropriate background. You know, something that uh, someone could basically become the new Thor. I'm just curious. Just food for thought. I'm not sure... I'm pretty sure Odin didn't intend it that way, but it's just something to think about. Quick aside. During the argument between Thor and Odin... (sighs) Thor... Thor is petulant and stupid and childish. Anthony Hopkins was actually told, told, he was directed this, to improv his reaction to that. And you notice Anthony Hopkins stuck with his strength. He immediately went quiet and sad. In fact, you can almost hear how he's struggling to hold back tears as he pronounces that he his son has truly failed him in such a harsh and serious way. And then he banishes him. It's powerful stuff. Then, we pretty much see the end of Act 1. Up until now, the tone has, has bounced around a little bit, but it's been very much in the epic category, right? This has all been, raw, character-centric stuff, powerful stuff, and, ha! no banishment, ha! And then it immediately shifts to more comedic and lighthearted tone when we enter the, the middle part. Uh, if I was to describe this in a... T- in my, you know how I like to give uh, graphing for the uh, the intensity and the strength and the, uh, the tone of a work? It kind of started reasonably high, and then it just kind of slowly built for the entire first act, and then it plummets, and we stayed down for quite a while, actually, in the second act of the film. <sighs> um... I don't have much to say about it, unfortunately. Um, you know, they, they do good stuff. There's some good presentation. Uh, it's funny. It makes me laugh. I, th- I think it's funny. I should clarify that. Obviously, humor is highly subjective. I like the down-to-earth perspective of it. I like the fact that this is just a simple little town, although it's probably supposed to be larger than it actually is. I also love the bonk and, of course, Thor being, you know, I, I am the mighty Thor. You dare hurt the mighty Thor. Yeah. I also love the fact that Mjolnir itself becomes basically an attraction, like a little place for people to go around. and They got, they got a grills out there. They got beers. They got, they're got cooking some hot dogs, bringing up people over, hooking the truck up to it, everyone trying, because that's exactly what would happen in real life. It is so wonderfully normal and human that it adds that all-important flavor, something that is very needed in a film so fantastical and magical. It adds believability. I honestly feel, if it wasn't for the middle part of this film, it would lose that believability flavor to the film. That it would just be too fantastic and too out there, which is something we just haven't built up to yet in, in, in the MCU. I mean, remember, we just got done with... Robots in an armor suit, and then robots in an armor suit with another armor suit, and lightning whips. That's like about as as ostentatious as we've gotten as lightning whips, for God's sakes. Now we have people who have literal magic and exist in other dimensions. I mean, <sighs> um, I also like that that whole you know circus carnival thing they got going on because it makes perfect sense for how Shield would be able to hunt down this specific location. Obviously, they saw the the impact and were looking for whatever it was and it probably did something weird to their sensors they know it's putting off some kind of weird radiation so there it is then we cut to a later scene now something i kind of skipped over in an earlier scene is when loki is you know volstag is like oh my god don't let them touch you seconds later one of them grabs loki's arm and he's fine his skin just goes blue loki's not stupid He's actually very smart. The problem with Loki is that... Well, I'll get to that later. So he goes, he grabs, you know, the... God, I can't remember what it's called. The artifact, the frost artifact. And he looks over and he's all blue. He's a frost giant. Dun, dun, dun. His scene as he talks to Odin is telling, I think. Because he's enraged. He's furious. Oh my god, you did this to me. And and I was just another artifact for you to steal. And none of this mattered. Dad? Dad? And you could just see... Again, credit to Hiddleston. You just see all that rage and all that righteous fire... Woof! Out! Just like that. As he realizes that Odin has collapsed. And then there's like a solid three or four seconds as he's just in shock. And then listen to his voice when he calls for the Guards! Guards! Like like he's just struggling to swallow the panic. Because it's not like Odin hates his father. He just isn't really that strongly connected to his father. Not like his mother, which we'll get to later. Um, so then Coulson shows up. Coulson's awesome. He is, as usual, awesome. He also is awesome for a different reason, though, because... He is basically playing the, the feds here, you know, uh, which, for those of you who don't live in the United States, who may not be aware of this, the feds, or the G-men, is usually a villainous group. As in, anytime you use that term, it's usually meant as a derogatory. You know, oh, God, the feds showed up, you know. So he is, in all effects, playing the feds here. Now, if we've watched the films up to now, we know Colson's not a bad guy. We know S.H.I.E.L.D. are not bad guys. <laughs> But the way, Coulson, the way they're presented in this film, they are basically the bad guys, except Coulson goes out of his way to be polite, courteous, and to be like, listen, gives her a check. We don't see how much, but there's the implication that it's a significant sum of money here. We, we're not paying you off for your silence. This is in compensation for all the stuff that we have to confiscate. Here you go. Um, sorry, we we do have to do this. We're the good guys. Sorry. You know, he's he's he doesn't actually say sorry, but he is exceptionally polite, and he even prevents it from escalating, as it could have in the hands of someone less skilled. I really like Colson, Is that obvious? <laughs> Another relatively minor character in this film who's kind of awesome. Colson's awesome! Yeah! You guys are going to make me happy, by the way, if in the comments section when this film comes out, I or when this video comes out, I'm going to see comments that just say, you know, such and such is awesome! Yeah! Don't do it just because I said it. It's just... It's something that'll make me smile. So... Then we get to the forty eight minute of the movie. We've kind of raced through this. I kind of want to watch this again. I really like this film. Um... And it's the first time that Loki is actually villainous. It's the first time he's done anything that would put him into the villain category. Everything up until this point has either been light mischief or, you know, simple brotherly interactions or him disagreeing with people or whatever. This is the first time when he comes across as legitimately the bad guy. No, no, we're keeping Thor banished. And he starts lying to people. Now, the thing is, if you pay attention, and I want you to pay attention, if you rewatch this film or have just rewatched this film, think back. Think about all the things he says from about this point, pretty much right up until the confrontation between him and Thor and the Bifrost. Because he lies constantly. It actually becomes difficult to tell when he's telling the truth. I have a theory behind that, which I'm building up to. It is also interesting that he become, he is far more friendly to Friga even here in this film. That'll obviously pay off far more in the second film. But you can really tell that this man legitimately does mu- love his mother. Not much to say. Most people love their mothers. So, really quick thing that I never actually noticed before. And I had to rewind just to catch it. Because uh, I was like, wait a minute, rewind. Uh, Skullgård. Uh, I, I can't actually even think of the character's name, but, you know, the guy Skarsgård, Skullsgard, god, I can't pronounce his name now, is playing, this, the, the older scientist guy, pulls out this book. Oh, yeah, he also referenced Bruce Banner. That's actually the first reference to Bruce Banner, like, in, in this whole thing, which is weird, you'd think he would come up more. But anyway, so he brings out the book, and there's a picture of Thor, excuse me, Odin, walking down the rainbow to Earth, and he's got the spear, and he's got the Tesseract. He's actually got the Tesseract here in Thor. Now, that's not a huge surprise. Remember, we know that Phase 1 was designed to be this, that it was designed to be a cohesive story, and there are a couple holes, but not that many. So it's just nice to see the little details they put into it. Speaking of which, another little bit of trivia here. The village that they showed towards the beginning of the film in the flashback was actually the same village and same general set that they used when filming Captain America, when Red Skull found the Tesseract. Interesting to note that something so important to the entire franchise, which will come up again in Infinity War, hasn't even really made a real appearance yet. It won't until the next film, actually. Captain America, I mean. Anyways, anyways, anyways. So, Thor goes to to get his hammer back. What I find interesting is that he manages to, to just demolish his way through there. Now, that doesn't surprise me. If I, I, You know how often it is for geeks to discuss the relative combat capacities of fictional characters. It's pretty common. Um, you know, the who would win, such and such and such and such is the most basic form of that, but more in-depth discussions of abilities or what would work against what is also kind of fascinating from a purely speculative perspective. Thor himself is someone I've always considered to be pretty much the heavy of the Avengers, at least until uh, Vision showed up. Because Thor isn't just very durable, and has the hammer, but he and is very strong, of course, but he is also really skilled. Now, we've kind of already seen that. When he was beating the crap out of the Frost Giants earlier, he was demolishing them, and he wasn't just slug, slug, slug. He was getting creative. He knew how to use Mjolnir. It was practically an extension of himself. Here... When he has a mortal body, so he doesn't have any of his super strength, none of his durability, and he doesn't have the hammer or the lightning, he still manages to basically walk his way through that place with relative ease. Now it is worth noting that most of that is because Coulson was deliberately holding back. And thank goodness for that, because I'm pretty sure they would have just flat out killed Thor if not for that. Thankfully, however, Coulson was right. He is one of the good guys. And while he doesn't know who or what Thor is... The good guys don't kill people just because, especially not when they're smart. And Colson is very smart. I love how they portray him in this. First of all, we see Hawkeye, brief, brief cameo of Hawkeye. He's kind of awesome, even his little bits here, you know. Better, take, better make the call quickly, Colson, because I'm starting to root for this guy. you know, that was good stuff. Um, but Colson, again, he's smart. He wants to see what happens. You know, obviously there's a security breach. Go check it. Okay, go send the guys. All right, he's just wrecking through them. All right, give me an eye eye on this guy. What's he doing? He's going for the middle. Hold back. And he's got way more men. He just holds them back. He's like, hold back, guys. Let's see what happens. And then when when, uh, Burton, I think, God, Hawkeye, flat out says, I mean, last chance. And he says, no, no, no. I want to see what happens. I know that sounds weird. And it's very risky what he does. But it is still also very smart. It is a smart gamble. Trying to just take this guy will result in nothing gained on their part. So, statistically speaking, either this person going after the hammer is going to reclaim it, or he has been sent to retrieve it. Make sense? So if he's going to reclaim it, whether he's a good guy or bad guy at that point, the odds are they're not going to have a lot of success stopping him. And if they do stop him, they probably won't learn anything from him, like they in fact don't. If he has been sent to retrieve it, he doesn't know anything anyways and may not be able to retrieve it at all, as indeed kind of proves true. So, it is a risk. This could go very badly. But it is a calculated risk designed to see what happens, because that's what they're really here for. This is an an investigation. They want to know what and why is going on with this hammer. And then he fails to pick it up. Now, he's got to have the yelling at the sky thing. But I want to give Chris Hemsworth credit, because after he finishes his Nyaaaah! then the subtlety of his performance, his body motion, and his face in every bit afterwards speaks volumes way more than the yell did. Because we see Thor finally getting it. I know that sounds weird, but let me explain. At that moment, that is when everything hits home for Thor. None of this has been real. You know, I'm just, I'm just stuck on Earth for a bit. As soon as I get my hammer back, going back home, we'll go back to the way things were. It hasn't occurred to him that things have permanently changed. It hasn't occurred to him that this is anything but a temporary vacation. It has never occurred to him that he will ever not be Thor, God of Thunder. When he fails to pick up that hammer and he realizes what that means, he realizes that he has different, that he is not worthy, and that He's not sure what's going to happen now. He even admits as much to Skalsgård's character. I really, what the hell was his name? God damn it, I don't want everyone to tell me his name. Give me a second, give me a second, let me look it up. Skalsgård's character is... Uh, Eric Selvig, there we go, Erik Selvig. <sighs> Selvig, he admits as much to Selvig later. He's like, I, for the first time in my life, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I'm not even sure who I am. You know, he he just flat out lays it out there. I am a lost person. Now. <laughs> then Coulson kind of pulls Thor aside. Asks him some questions. Loki slips in. Illusionist. Here's a question for you. How far in advance do you think Loki planned any of the things that he's been doing? I'm really curious what you think. I've heard multiple people debate this topic, including me, over the years. And I've heard a lot of different opinions on it. I know what mine is. I'm actually pretty solid in my opinion, especially having rewatched this with analysis mode on. I think Loki hasn't really planned this out at all. No, seriously. I don't think Loki is really... I don't think this is all some big master plan. I think he let in some frost giants just to, just to mess with his brother, because screw him, And then, you know, ah, whatever. He becomes king, whatever. And then everything kind of goes to hell. So he's like, okay, I'll, sup- uh, I'll go ahead and manipulate you. Let's, let's go ahead and go down there. But then he immediately sends for the guard because he doesn't actually want anyone hurt. He doesn't actually want anyone killed. Keep that in mind, by the way. And then... Later on, he's like, oh, okay, Odin, uh, Thor has been banished, and Odin is, okay, well, now I'm, I need to know what I am. Oh, God, yeah, oh, Odin's, dad, dad, okay, okay, he's asleep, he's asleep, now what? And I think that moment, like, the now what, after Odin falls into Odin's sleep, is the first time where Loki's like, okay, now I've got to start planning. This is my opinion, of course. And then he starts thinking, okay, I need to keep Thor banished so I can stay king, because if he comes back, he'll just take the kingship. Um, I'll just go tell him some lies really quick. And then everyone else, I'll just tell, no, I'm not going to bring him back. There we go, there we go, perfect. And I honestly think that's as far as he had planned at that point in time. It wasn't until later he's like, ah, I've got it. I know Odin is seeing all this. And I know Odin is is watching all this, so I need to prove that I'm actually cool with Odin, that I'm actually worth this thing, so I'm going to deal with the Frost Giant situation once and for all. So I'm going to go to the Frost Giants, let him in, like ha ha ha." then I'm going to be the savior of Asgard by taking out him, and then I'm going to go destroy the the Frost Giants, and Odin will still be in Odin's sleep, so he can't stop me. He'll see everything that's happening, but he'll know that I did it all for a good cause, and I was ultimately loyal to Asgard, not to the Frost Giants, because I'm not a Frost Giant! I think that's what was going through his mind. But I'll talk a little bit more about Loki later. Yes, we're still building up to it, I swear. Oh, and of course he tries the hammer. Gotta try the hammer while you're there, right? I mean, that's just the thing you do. I'm pretty sure if Mjolnir was a real-life artifact, you know, magical artifact, I'm pretty sure, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I imagine most people who saw that and knew how it worked, like everyone watching this video does, would at least be like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a tug. Let's, Let's see what happens. No, okay. I wouldn't be able to lift that. Holy crap, no. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, then Coulson lets uh, Skelvig, whatever the hell his name is, I just looked it up, uh, take Thor. Again, the smart move, because they've already tried interrogations, and they don't really want to torture this guy for information. Remember, we're the good guys, right? <laughs> so, instead... Let's let him go and just follow him and watch him. Let's just keep eyes on him. Let them think they got away and then they'll loosen up a bit and we'll figure out what the hell is going on. It is, again, the smart move. I really like Colson. Is that, is that not obvious? Um, it's also funny because earlier, you know, when he's, in, he's interrogated, he was questioning Thor, who's basically non-responsive. Uh, he says, well, one way or another, we'll, we'll get the truth. Uh, we're good at that. I think this showcases just how good S.H.I.E.L.D. really can be. Yeah, any old organization, good, bad, neutral, whatever, can just ah torture, mind-sifting. S.H.I.E.L.D. lets him go. Keeps a tab on him. Keeps a bug on him. It says, all right, go ahead. We'll be watching. They don't tell them that, of course. So Selvig... Oh, I actually wrote his name down. Holy crap. Selvig and Thor have a really great scene. I kind of already covered this, so I don't have much else to say about it. It's just really good. The two actors have nice chemistry, and you could see just the human, human revelation and the human emotions going through Thor's mind uh, and across his face at that point. Yeah, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know what to do anymore. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, oh! Um, this is also... Right about when the romance plot between... Oh my god, I can't think of her name. I mean, it's Natalie Portman. But I can't think of the the character name. Between Physicist Lady... I don't actually mean that as an insult. In fact, I think she does a good job in this film of being more than just damsel in distress. I think she's actually a pretty interesting and engaging character and makes a nice parallel and contrast to Thor himself. Thor, the skilled but basically brute and... hmm, whatever her name is, Natalie Portman's character, um, the, the the physicist, the person who knows how this works, the person who, when she actually ends up going to Asgard in the second film, can actually understand what some of the magic tech of the Asgardian stuff is and be like, oh yeah, that's what this is. and You know, the, the Eisenstein Rosenbridge, Einstein Rosenbridge and all this fun stuff. And of course, she's not the kind of person to be cowed by him. So no one is particularly more or less dominant in the relationship. So, I actually think there's a good dynamic between both characters. It's a shame that not everyone agrees with me on that, because Natalie Portman's character, whatever her name is, basically stops being relevant after uh, Thor 2. But I digress. So, I actually wonder how the Nine Realms line up with the galaxy. What do you think? What's, what's your theory on that? There's two theories I tend to hear most commonly. One is that the Nine Realms is basically like the local... uh sector, to use this typical science fiction term. Like, the Nine Realms is all of the major inhabited planets within this sector that happens to include Earth, you know, the home sector, if you will. I've heard some people say that each realm is actually gargantuan, and each one is actually a completely different dimension. So, in other words, the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy and all the universe, is all still part of uh, Midgard, a.k.a., the, you know, the, the one of the realms. I don't know, I just thought I'd bring it up cuz I'm curious what you guys think. Personally, I like to think the the local sector group thing, especially since it makes a little bit of sense for why people in the rest of the Guardians of the galaxies recognize no as guardians and the Asgardians tend to not really care about what's going on outside of the realms, even though we know stuff is going on outside of the realms, although that's m- much more recent movies for for evidence on that. But that's just that's just my personal take on it. Um so Heimdall's awesome. <laughs> this is where his awesome scene is, which I mentioned earlier. Um, Loki can actually shroud himself from Heimdall, by the way. That's impressive. Heimdall's shtick is literally that he can see anywhere. Just whoosh, all he has to do is be looking at you, just... Whoosh, um, and and here, apparently, as well. And Loki can actually be immune to that, at least temporarily. It says a lot about Loki and what he can do. Not super strong, but he doesn't need to be. And then we go... We, we pretty much end the second act. The second act effectively ends in the scene where the Sif and the Warriors 3, who are awesome, yeah, who show up and they're like, Hi! they just bang on the window. Hi! That's great. That's also pretty much the last comedic bit of the entire film. Because then the tone shifts instantly and drastically when the Destroyer shows up on Earth. Now... There's one exception to that, and that one exception is when Coulson and the other agent, who's been a recurring character throughout this whole bit, uh, says, is that one of Starks? And Coulson says, I don't know, the guy doesn't tell me anything. I loved that little tidbit. In addition to the continuity, it also would make sense in-universe for people to, as soon as they see some giant new robot thing, it's like, oh, goddammit, Stark, not again. I wonder what they thought of Ultron. Anyways, so... This is when things kind of really take a more serious tone. The Destroyer just starts rampaging through the town, leveling the square block (laughs) Uh, with awesome firepower. But no, the the Destroyer is legitimately awesome. They do a great, again, visual effects job. Um, Probably my personal favorite bit is when uh, Sif has... Speared him into the ground, and so the destroyer basically transforms his way to look be looking up rather than down and then gets himself off the spear and continues destroying things. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Very impressive. There's some good character moments. I'm kind of skipping over a lot of this, but my favorite part and the thing I really want to talk about is that Thor defeats his problem by not beating up the bad guy. This scene is the perfect contrast, the mere parallel, or the bookend, if you will, to the beginning of the film. And not the very beginning, I'm talking about when he was going through Jotunheim. When he was just smashing his way through everything, smash, 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 kill, crush, kill. Nearly got his friend killed, nearly got the rest of them killed, and started a war between the two races. Because I gotta beat up some bad guys. Here, he saves his friends saves his people, saves some strangers he's never even met, and saves his love interest by not beating up the bad guy. Because that's not always the answer. And thus we see his character arc having come full full tilt. This is someone who understands now the ideas of what it means to actually have some concept of leadership or ownership of responsibility or the simple power of talking. As you might imagine, I believe quite a bit in the power of talking. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that happens. First of all, note this is not actually the climax of the film. Now, that's very interesting to me. In a typical act structure, this would be the end of Act Three. In fact, the film probably could have ended with Thor dying and, you know, that would have worked in several different fictional works. I'm not saying that's what they should have done. I'm saying the beats of the film have followed this act structure fairly co- con- conclusively. But then the film keeps going. He, he is, you know, he is, he grabs the hammer back, he comes he's back to life, he gets the armor back, he destroys the destroyer, ironically. And then we go to the actual climax, which is a lot more personal and a lot more awesome. Because here's the thing. Loki was willing to kill Thor. Try to keep that in mind. Up until that exact moment, despite all the things Loki has done, his lies and his manipulations and deceit, that's the first moment Loki does something that really just kind of goes right over that line of acceptability. He murders Thor. And I know it's the Destroyer that does it, but, I mean, you know, that's the whole is the knife responsible for the killing argument all over again. So... And Odin cries, because we know Odin is aware of everything in Odin's sleep. Um, Coulson rolls with the punches, as usual. You know, we want to coordinate with you from now on. We'll work with her. He basically brings uh, Natalie Portman's character, god damn, into the fold. Basically pulls her in under shield in order to operate on this kind of thing You know going forward. And, uh, and I like that, because once again we see Coulson... Willing to accept that this person was some—he was someone who was basically on their side. He is one of the good guys, and I like that. I also love the little tidbit where—and where, I know everyone's caught this—I just got a comment on it. Where Thor says, "Son of Cole, you must go with me," because Coulson, you know, Od- Odin's son, right? Anyways, so um, so Heimdall crushes two frost giants, which is awesome. Frigga doesn't crush the frost giants. That's actually confusing. And then we get to Loki's plan, right towards the end here. Loki's plan, as I mentioned, has many holes in it. Because now his overall plan is, okay, I'm going to destroy Jotunheim with the Bifrost, as was Chekhov's gun earlier. And once I do this, I will have saved the kingdom, I will have saved Asgard, I will have assured peace, and Earth will never be threatened again, Asgard will never be threatened again, it'll be awesome! These are the actions of a desperate child. I told you I was building up to it. When he fights Thor, he says a couple of lines that really resonate with me. Fight me. Slash. Come on, fight me. Notice Thor has no inclination to fighting Loki. But Loki is basically raving and ranting at this point, trying to provoke Thor into fighting him. It isn't until he finally threatens... Ugh. I am gonna. St- I really hate bringing up this character so much. I'm going to look her up. Hang on, hang on. What's her frickin' name? Jane Foster. <sighs> he threatens Jane Foster, knowing that that's the thing that will finally push Thor to actually fight him back. Because Thor wasn't really interested in the conflict up till then, if you were paying attention. But he says a couple of other interesting lines as he does that. I never wanted the throne. I only ever wanted to be your equal. And he's literally crying as he speaks. Here is my thoughts on Loki as at this point in time. Loki is emotionally distraught to the point where Loki does not know what Loki wants. He does not know who he is. He does not know what or why. And he does not know where he wants to go. He is using the talents at his disposal, which is manipulation and planning and scheming, to just try anything that he can, in any direction that he can, with a violent desperation. Just flailing wildly. And I think that that helps to explain all of the interesting presentations of Loki throughout this. The one and only thing that kind of steps over the line is his willingness to kill Thor, which is interesting given how that goes in the future, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, and I really, really love the fight between him and Thor because you could tell Thor is holding back and you could tell Loki isn't really trying his hardest. In fact, he only tries to actually use illusion magic, his fighting style, once. And he does it for a cheap stab and then he laughs about it. This is a good time to bring up Tom Hiddleston again, really quick. Tom Hiddleston flat out stated that he was inspired by multiple different presentations and uh, acting mentalities for Loki himself. He wanted to portray Loki as someone who hit all of these different beats at different points in time. Trying to show that instability, that emotional distraughtness that is Loki throughout the course of this film. So we see someone who is basically on the verge of insane. We see someone who is this simmering fury. We see someone who is this conniving manipulator. And he just kind of bounces back between them. Now, I'm not saying Loki's a good guy. God, no. But I really have a hard time truly classifying him as a truly evil person. I also have to admit, it's interesting in the final sequence of events, you know, Loki is going to destroy the Frost Giants. Quick aside, I know this is a really, really weird question to ask, but is there anything wrong with that? I don't mean ethically. Obviously, genocide is generally a bad thing. Although, at the same time, I have to point out that the movie never paints the Frost Giants as anything positive. Not once. So, I mean, it'd be kind of like wiping out a planet of the First Order over in Star Wars, or a planet of... I don't know, Nazis or something. you know. So it's kind of like, why is this a bad thing? <laughs> I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on. Anyways, getting back to my point. So I also don't know what it would do to the realms. Like, okay, one of the realms is gone. Now what? Anyways, anyways. <clears throat> so he's going to destroy Jotunheim. Thor can't stop that in time. So he's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the bridge. And Loki is like, you, you can't do that. Wait, I'll just, I'll just use Jane Foster again. That worked last time. Okay, it's not working. It's not working. And you could just see in Loki's face the, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So he lunges at them with the spear out of just desperation, like, yeah, explosion. What happens next in quick succession is interesting because the first thing that happens is Thor catches Loki. He specifically grabs the spear, which Loki's holding on to. And then Odin, you know, grabs Thor. Now, that's very important because that means Thor was more interested or more capable of grabbing Loki to save him than grabbing the bridge to save himself. And then Loki, flailing, literally, in over the depths, says, I did it for you, father. I could have did it all for you. And Odin says something I've never quite understood, and I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Odin says, no. And then Loki lets go. I want you to remember that, by the way. Loki didn't, you know, Loki wasn't uh, d- tossed out or cast down or whatever. Loki released his grip on the spear and fell of his own volition. So then we have, I actually wrote him her down as Natalie Portman. I didn't even write down Jane Foster. Jane Foster, part of S.H.I.E.L.D. now. Trying to figure out what the hell's going on, looking into this whole multidimensional thing. I wonder why she didn't notice when Thor showed up the second time. Anyways, and then we lead into, you know, our final teaser, our final lead-up. And they actually called this very specifically. They called it Captain America, the first Avenger. Making it very, very clear to everyone, even people who weren't following the news or who weren't comic book fans, where these movies were going and where it was leading up to. And I hope you'll be joining me next week when we'll be talking about that film. And I'll see you there.